Hey, Brian. Hi, Dan. Hey, listeners. Welcome to the 66th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Brian, we're recording this about 24 hours before New Year's, in 27 hours. The start of 2022. How are we feeling at the end of this year? Yeah, it's New Year's Eve Eve. New Year's Adam, because Adam came before Eve. Oh, yeah. Wow. Starting with the deep insights right off the bat. <laughs> well, 2021, as I'm sure is true for many of you, was a very weird year yet again. It's like you keep thinking things are going to return to normal and they don't. But we move forward. How was your year shaping up here at the end, Dan? Honestly, it's a pretty good year. A lot of things I'm proud of and things that went really well. Good year for my family and my daughters, which is really the most important thing to me. And then this podcast has been the main force of my creative energy and spare time. And I've been pleased with what we've done here. So I feel good. I think it's appropriate that we're doing a little bit of a reflection here, thinking about our memories of 2021. And now I've just got the way we were playing in my head memories like the corners of my mind <laughs> misty watercolor memories because what did we watch this week we watched eternal sunshine of the spotless mind a 2004 drama sci-fi fantasy romance comedy a little bit of everything movie and if i recall correctly you had never seen this one is that is that right brian yeah, this was new to me, except for that I knew the premise. Gotcha. And so Dan wanted to say here at the start, as we always do, we will be including spoilers. Because I, I suppose this movie is spoilerable. Although, if you're like me, you may already know the premise. And it definitely affects how you perceive the movie and the way that it's presented. Yeah, more specifically, even just beyond the spoilers, I think this is a movie that... A lot of the pleasure that I feel about this movie is learning how it's telling its story as it tells its story. And if it's one you haven't seen and you think you might like, I think you would probably get more pleasure out of watching it as blind as you can. So that that's just my warning to listeners up front. If it's one you're really thinking about watching, go stop the podcast, go listen to one of our old episodes, go listen to our high school musical marathon from mid-2020. It's going to be more pertinent than you might think. <laughs> oh, I'm not even sure where you're... Oh, I think I know where you're going to go with that. We'll see. But yeah, so that that's just a warning up front. But the reason that I selected this movie, there's two reasons. The first reason is the first 10 or so minutes of this movie take place in the winter and have a couple of really iconic moments and shots out in the snow that have been etched in my brain since I first saw this movie probably over 10 years ago, about 10 years ago. No, it must have been over 10 years ago. Brian, did you think as you were watching this movie, did it strike you as wintry at all? Yeah, certainly ice is prominent and there's some snow. There's like icy coastline and it made me kind of wonder where they were. I, I guess they do say they're in like, is it New Jersey? It Sometimes it doesn't really look like New Jersey, but I haven't spent a lot of time there, so I can't really say. But yes, winter is involved. I think they might live in New York City and the coastal snow shots are 
in Montauk, New York, or I don't know if they're actually shot there or what, but that's part of Long Island. It's like the far end of Long yeah. Island. Yeah, they, they do talk about Montauk a lot in this film. And previous to this, the only thing I knew about Montauk was it was the site of the Montauk monster sightings. Mm. So are, do you remember the Montauk monster, Dan? No, I don't know that. All right. So it was just this weird animal carcass that washed up on a beach and like part of the skull was exposed so it looks like it has like a weird beak even though the rest of it it looks mammalian so it's it's like a weird griffin looking thing and so whenever i hear montauk in this movie that's what i was thinking of that the the monster was going to keep showing up but it, it never did gotcha for me i think of montauk uh billy joel is one of my all time favorite musicians and he grew up in Long Island and he includes Long Island specific details in some of his lyrics. And he mentions Montauk in at least one song. So I think of Billy Joel when I hear about Montauk. But yeah. So so yeah, the the winter, the the iciness, the the wintry feel is one reason. The second reason is that I'm gonna give some full context for this in a moment here. This movie ranked on a list of my favorite movies that I made in two thousand nine. And it was number 66 of my 100 favorite movies when I made that list. So it's a movie that I have treasured for for much of my life since I watched it. The exact reasoning for me picking this movie right now, though, I just want to do a little bit of reflection, a little bit of context setting on my life as a movie fan. Some of this content is stuff that might more appropriately live in what we call our spectaculars every 25 episodes. I'm not going to dwell too long on it, but... I, it occurred to me that it's been a while since I've kind of done a personal level setting on how I feel about movies and, and kind of getting some background here. So in some of these things, Brian, I don't know if we've ever even talked about. So this is just the theme of the episode, memories. I'm going to give you a walk down my memory lane for, for movie fandom. How does that sound? Memories. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. So when I was growing up, and when I mean growing up, I mean like a a young child and elementary school student. I liked movies. I loved individual movies, but I wouldn't say that I was a movie lover. I was not a cinephile. It wasn't until I was in maybe fourth or fifth grade and I developed a really strong friendship with a kid named Andy. He actually was in like kindergarten, first grade, third grade or something like that. Uh, a bunch of bunch of years with me and we became best friends for a long time. I moved and we drifted apart, but he was a pretty formative person on me and my personality. And one thing is that he was a major film lover, a movie lover. He introduced me to my first kind of movie obsessions and the ones that were big for him that he passed on to me. Some of these might've went up into middle school and early high school when I, I saw them, but uh, he really loved Star Wars. So the original trilogy, he made me a Star Wars fan, which I remain to this day. He also was really into Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And that was, of course, an important comedy movie for me, as I think it is for many a weird kid out there. Yeah, that was big in sixth grade for me. But I never really went much deeper than that. You know, I always kept up with the movies that we would go to see at the theaters and what my parents would play me. But I never displayed much curiosity getting deeper into the art form until I was in high school. And really later high school and then in college. And I often find when I find myself getting really into a topic, it's driven 
less so by an intrinsic interest in that thing and more so by a voice or a writer who really draws me to that. And so like, it's like, I like reading that person's writing and they make me care about the thing. It's usually a writer. There's been a couple of times it's been like podcasts or something like that or audio courses. Like in the case of classical music, I took a really good audio course and that got me really into classical music. But um, for me, and this is going to be not even remotely original for any movie fans out there. For me, it was Roger Ebert in in college. He's the, he was the accessible one. He was the one who made me really excited and about movies and made me want to appreciate movies deeper and to try out like canonical masterpieces and, and hidden gems and different types of movies and different voices and stuff. So I credit the the massive amount of Roger Ebert I read from around the end of high school up through my first few years of college to be one of the initial factors that really made me into a movie fan, a, a cinephile, if you will. Did you have any really formative writers for you, Brian, on on how you looked at movies, how you thought about movies? Yeah, so pretty much as long as I can remember, I've been into movies, even early on. But one critic who was influential on me, just in the sense that he introduced to me the concept that a critic could even be a thing, a job, was Leonard Malton. You mentioned Star Wars uh, being one of the first movies that you were kind of steered towards as this is a good, important, classic movie. Well, when I was five, I got a VHS release of Star Wars for Christmas. And it came in like a box that looked like Darth Vader's helmet. And when you put the VHS in, the first thing that comes up is this little promo clip of Leonard Moulton introducing the movie. And he says, I'm Leonard Moulton, and you're about to enjoy George Lucas's masterpiece, Star Wars. And so it, it blew my mind a little bit that here was a guy who holds the authority of like telling you what movies are good. And it was built on because my dad would always get uh, every so often, every couple years, Leonard Moulton Movie Guide, which was this huge like thousand page book that had a little blurb on every movie that had come out and what he rated it. I've seen those before. I've, I've read a decent amount of Moulton, but probably not as much as you. And that reminds me, I, I've been collecting large anthologies of film reviews and I should track down a, a Moulton book. Yeah, eventually it got to the point that now they're like broken out into modern and classic era installments. And gotcha. so much of it you can just access online anyway. But there was something cool about having this tome of all the movies and what he thought. Yeah, yeah. So that idea got into my brain early on of that there's like a, a gatekeeper, just somebody who holds sway and can like be your tour guide through the movies that's cool yeah the next really important moment for me is being a movie fan and i promise this is going to circle back to eternal sunshine of spotless mind here in a bit but the next kind of important moment for me was in college my freshman year i did not enjoy my college years very much i've mentioned this before I really just didn't do a good job adjusting and and freshman year in particular was a rough year for me. That said, I had one really big highlight freshman year, and that was that I 
uh, made a really close friend, a guy named Sean, not to be confused with the Sean that follows our podcast and that we've met, mentioned on the, the podcast before. This is a different Sean. But all Sean's are welcome. <laughs> of course. But so this Sean was remained very close to his high school friends. He, he grew up in New Jersey. And uh, what, what Sean had set up with some of his friends that he was really close with in high school was a Facebook group, which is much less of a thing now than it was back in 2007. And it was called Ridiculous Arguments Group. So that's what they named it. Ridiculous Arguments Group. R-A-G or RAG for short. And they they just it was a group of people, their personality really rubbed off on me and has stuck around with me a little bit to this day. They just love hypotheticals, ridiculous comparisons, thought exercises and games. And they're all really into movies and other things, too. But movies was the big one. And one thing that they were really into in particular was they each had a top 100 movies list that they maintained. They updated periodically, like every couple months they would update. They see something new that they like, they rewatch some favorite, they would adjust the ranking a little bit. At least three of them had top 100 favorite movies lists that they talked about. And we were, they were posting their own movie reviews all the time on that group. We had one thread that was just called movie reviews and we had to like rate a movie out of 10 and give a couple of sentences on it. So we were always talking about movies. It kind of went from a ridiculous arguments group to a movie discussion group. And one thing they pressured me to do, I was pretty active. One thing they pressured me to do was to make my own top 100 movies list, which is something I had never really attempted to do before, even as I've gotten more and more into movies. So that year for the first time, I made a top 50 in 2007. This was the first time I had ever done a large scale favorite movies list. So this was a big effort for me. And I actually just managed to track this list down. It was lost in the archives of my backups, but I, I found it recently. And it was pretty cool to see like what I was thinking back in 2007. A lot of movies I loved then, I still love now. And some I am just baffled that I felt strongly enough to, to put on there. What's the weirdest one on the 2007 list? Oh, God. I have it up right now. Let me see. Maybe the weirdest one is Mission Impossible 3, but no other Mission Impossible movies. Also, Die Hard 4 and no other Die Hard movies. <laughs> so I, I don't know what I was thinking with those ones. I would say those are probably the weirdest, having just scrolled through it. But I, I stayed active in that group for at least a few years. And in 2009, after continued pressure... I finally made a full top 100. So I hadn't updated it since the 2007 list. But in 2009, I made my own top 100. And I posted it as a Facebook note. And I, I just I listed out with really no description or anything from one down to 100. Here are my 100 favorite movies. Got some feedback from my friends in RAG. I got some other comments on it. I actually just tracked down that Facebook note again recently. So th this was really cool for me because this is like a moment when I had a personal canon, if you will, a uh, a top 100 movie list like I'd, people had been talking about for me. It was culmination of all my years of movie watching. You know, even some of those ones, those first ones, Star Wars, Monty Python, those made it on the list. So that was like a culminating moment for me as a movie fan back in 2009, making this top 100. And so what's kind of interesting about this 2009 list is Dan has been talking about this a lot this year because he's been kind of revisiting it and watching all the movies, right? 
Yeah, I'm going to get to that in a second. But yeah, that uh, indeed, it's been something that's been on my mind quite a bit. So I've been hearing about this list and I, I did look it over. Didn't think too much about it, except that I realized today I, I never really forgot this. So I, I don't know why it's taken me till now to put the pieces together. But I also made a top 100 favorite movies list as a Facebook note in 2009. And so in the lead up to today's episode, I went back through my archives and was able to find this note again. They, they don't make it easy. They've taken the notes tab away. There used to be a notes tab and it's it's gone. So I, I had to like set the filters to jump back to 2009. And how should this note begin? But I was inspired by Dan's note, which is a little strange because I don't even think I was really in touch with Dan at this point. It must have just come across my newsfeed. Yeah, we were Facebook friends and... I think we might have occasionally hit the like button on each other's stuff, but I wouldn't really say that we were friends back in 2009. Like we weren't talking outside of occasionally a Facebook comment. And and now here we are. <laughs> yeah. So surprising and jarring to see that we were simpatico in this way in 2009, 12 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I, I made this list. It was August 2009. And then I basically left it untouched. For a long time. That was my top 100. I didn't really think too much about it. I didn't update it. But later that year, uh, in fact, pretty close to around the same time now that I think about it, because uh, it was also, I think, August 2009, I did something else that would be pretty important for me in my movie fandom life, which is I started a blog with a few friends. And that has been mentioned several times. It is called earnthis.net. It's still up. still have over a th I think it's over a thousand articles that we've published in its history. At first, it was just me, my friend Grant. Within a couple weeks, we'd recruited our friend Colton. And then it would be a few years later that Brian and I would reconnect and Brian would join the blog. And that was really the basis for us reconnecting a few years later. But I, I would post movie reviews and, and movie lists and movie thoughts on this blog all the time. Yeah, so in 2011... I had a Facebook page, uh, which was called Brian Terrell Movie Night, because we would have um, events at my college where I would just screen a strange movie and and people from like my music fraternity and just people that I knew and a little bit of word of mouth. People would come and watch these movies. And I started during the holiday seasons writing little blog short form reviews of like Christmas specials and Halloween specials that I liked. And then in one spring and summer in 2013, I wanted to just kind of do something a little more ambitious. And so I dug up the uh, 2009 movie list and updated it with newer stuff that I'd seen and, and just kind of reevaluated, moved some things around in the rankings and came up with the Brian Terrell 100 film favorites for 2013. And I started writing longer reviews of each of those hundred movies on this Facebook page, which is when Dan reached out to me and said, hey, this is good. You want to like co-post this over on my blog? And I said, yeah, OK. And, and here we are eight years later. We stayed in pretty good touch since then. Uh, certainly picked up quite a bit since we started the podcast. Yeah, but that was really the uh, the door opener, the the bridge figure that reconnected us was these these lists. 
so yeah, that's the prelude. And like when I had a kid and I was already drifting from movies and from, and from creating content. But when I had a kid in 2017, I just stopped watching movies. Like I literally watched five movies from when my daughter was born up until 2019 or something like that. Five movies in two years or something like that. It was pretty sad. Well, you created a different kind of content. I, I suppose. Yeah. But here's the thing. In 2020, what felt like a half decade, at least since I was into movies, I started to feel like I was missing something. And I didn't know exactly what it was, but something about creating content, learning about culture and content, I didn't know what it was. And in this, either the summer or early fall of 2020, so during the pandemic, I stumbled upon a Reddit link to the website alternateending.com, a review written by the critic Tim Brayton. And it was a review of the classic French movie, uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc, the silent film. He basically tried to make the case that it was the greatest movie of all time. And it was really well written. And I was like, oh, this guy's interesting. Uh, I, I, let's see what else he's written. And I clicked on his reviews button. And he had over 4,000 reviews published. And so I don't know if you've ever had the experience, Brian, where you find some critic or writer that you like. And so you click through their archives for like days at a time. And this is what I did with with Tim's review archives. And it like awakened something in me that I was missing. I was like, oh, yeah, reading people who are really smart and learning what smart people have to say about movies and talking and thinking about movies is cool. And that is something I want to do. I would want to get back into it. And on August 24th, 2020, based on a recommendation that that Tim made, I pulled up the movie Suspiria. And I watched it and I was like, cool, I watched it. I had some thoughts. I want to talk about it with someone. What am I going to do? And I noodled on that for a couple of days and I decided, you know what? I should do a podcast. And the thought was the podcast would be easy. It would just be discussion and then boom, move on. I was like, who would be the best person to, to reach out to? And, oh, Brian, of course, because Brian loves movies. He We got good chemistry when we talk. He's smart and got good opinions and, and funny things to say. Let me see if he would be interested in trying something like this. And that is how the good started. And we published our first episode, in fact, about Suspiria, about a month after that. So that date, August 24th, 2020, I have like in my head as my quote unquote cinematic rebirth. I need to think of like what I call this day or like this moment, assuming that I maintain some enthusiasm for movies going forward. But that is the day that I officially got back into movies. A red letter day for science. When I came to, I had a vision, a picture in my head, a picture of this. That's Doc Brown showing the flux capacitor. Oh, right. Of course. November 5th, 1955. So as part of this, the cinematic rebirth, I made a Letterboxd account and I've talked quite a bit about Letterboxd and this is running kind of long here, but I, I'll just say that I've used it to fastidiously track the things that I watch and my thoughts on them. And my goal is to have a 2021, or at this point, it's going to be 2022 official top 100. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I kind of have the idea of having a living top 100 where I update it whenever I watch a movie. I also kind of like the idea of having official versioned top 100s. So like it's an event when you make a new one. I haven't decided where I'm going to land on that, but I know that I'm only going to include movies that I've watched since my cinematic rebirth. 
and as a result, I want this to represent like my history, you know, my, uh, my tastes to date. And so as Brian mentioned, I am rewatching my 2009 top 100 from number 100 up to number one. And it just so happened that last week we recorded, I had just finished number 67 and was moving on to number 66. And number 66 was A, a winter movie, and B, a movie that Brian had never seen, and C, a movie that I knew I would like. And it had been a while on the good since I had pulled in a movie that I knew that I would like. And so that, friends, after much delay, is why I selected Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind from 2004 as this week's movie. And D, by coincidence, this is episode 66 of The Goods. So we've got your 66th favorite movie from 2009 here. Oh, man. I didn't even make that connection when I wrote the number down. Did I just get confused? I'm going to just double check and make sure I didn't just get confused. No, it was number 66. Wow, that's wild. So here we are. We haven't even really started talking about the movie. Thank you for indulging me, Brian. Um, any parting thoughts before we actually move to the movie at, at hand, Brian? Oh, uh, no, just that uh, I understand the urge to get creating content again. So maybe I'll finally finish my list of TV reviews someday. That's that's the one I've kind of tapered off on. Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, we had the four reasons why we picked this. I guess five is... It's a movie about memory. It's making me think about my lists and it's New Year's and New Year's is a time for looking backwards and looking forwards. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind from 2004. This movie was directed by Michael Gondry, who up until 2004, he might have done one movie or two movies, but this was really his first major movie of notes. And he before that was a music video director. And perhaps even more notably, it was written by Charlie Kaufman, who is known for writing really creative and inventive and often kind of like dark and meta, perplexing in different ways, screenplays. He's also become a director and recently, too. I think in the, when I say recently, maybe even going back to like 2010 or something. But have you encountered either of these visionaries before the director, Michael Gondry, or the writer, Char Charlie Kaufman, Brian? Not the director, I don't think, but I have heard the name Charlie Kaufman. What are some of the other things he's worked on? Uh, adaptation. I think he did. Is it Becoming John Malkovich? Oh, uh, Being John Malkovich. I have heard of that one. That's one that I want to check out at some point. He did the animated movie Anna Melissa. He he had one this year. I'm thinking of ending things. Or that might have been 2020. He wrote and directed the 2008 movie Synecdoche, New York. Schenectady. Synecdoche. So no, it's a, it's a joke. Oh, is that the title of the film? Oh, all right. There's a town that sounds... What is it again? The town that sounds like that? Okay, the town is Schenectady. And now I gotta look up what this movie is before I sound too stupid. Synecdoche is a literary device. So I think it's this real cerebral movie. I've never seen it. Yeah, this guy strikes me as someone who has deep thoughts. Yeah. Complex thoughts. that He probably has like charts where he's mapping them out. He's also like kind of dark too. Like he, depression and a dour look on life, I think, is an element of many of his stories. And we can see how much that ties into this one. But let's jump into the, the plot of this, this film. And one last call, if you want to experience it organically, I think it's a good movie to go in as blind as you can. But I'm just going to hop in here full spoilers. So the movie opens with Joel 
So the two leads in this are Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet. So two people that have been featured on the goods in the past for sure. Kate Winslet on Titanic. Jim Carrey just a couple weeks ago on the Christmas Carol movie, although he was mo-capped animated there, not necessarily live action star. But he was there. Yeah. So these are some important names, some some leading figures. Yeah. And we see him waking up in a depressive funk in the middle of winter. And he takes a train on a whim out to Montauk. He's kind of giving a monologue, an internal monologue, as, as we're seeing him do this, out to an icy beach. And while he's there, he crosses paths with a girl with blue hair. And they kind of keep bumping into each other in the train and at a restaurant and stuff. And so they eventually say hi. And this is a woman named Clementine, played by Kate Winslet. And they kind of hit it off. It's like a meet cute, this little trip to Montauk. One thing to note here, Joel is, this is Jim Carrey. He's shy and bookish. Clementine, on the other hand, is very impulsive, very outspoken and erratic. And it is of note for sure for Carrie, and I think also for Winslet, that they are both playing against their types. I mean, when you think of a Jim Carrey movie, you think of a specific thing. Yeah, if there's one adjective that I would ascribe to Jim Carrey, it would not be shy. Shy would be at the bottom of the list. Multiple points in this movie, it seems like the the Jim Carrey is just about to bust out of him. But he keeps it as straight-laced as he possibly can. But there was a, a point early on when he's like walking by his car in this grim, dour winter atmosphere. And he sees that the car has like been damaged. It's like run up against a, uh, I think it's the fire hydrant or something. And he like just about does this double take. And I, I was expecting him to go, oh, come on, or something. Some some Ace Ventura, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. But no, he was reserved. Yeah, no bug eyes, right? And Winslet, on the other hand, she, up till then, had almost entirely played more button-down types and almost entirely period pieces. So, I mean, obviously the main one is Rose from Titanic, where she's kind of the more prim girl who needs to run away with the street urchin before he dies in icy waters. But here she is the opposite of that. I didn't even recognize her at first. I was like, oh, my God, that's her. I completely forgot that was her because she's she looks different because she's dyed her hair and her demeanor is just totally different. She's like spunky here. Yep. And just to throw it back to Carrie one one more time, I saw the trailer for Sonic 2 finally today. And this is this is not Dr. Robotnik, Jim Carrey. <laughs> no. Introducing Dr. Robotnik into the Eternal Sunshine universe. I'm trying to imagine how that would play out. They do have some like goofy technology things in this. So I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, so they they meet in this this day out. They share a drink. They decide to go on a date the next day. And it's a really nice date. And this is where we get the best wintry shots of the movie. They do this like walk on around this lake park. They walk out onto the ice and we get this really iconic shot that I think is usually used in posters where they're lying on the ice that has like some veiny looking cracks on it. And they're kind of lying askew with this stark white background of the ice underneath them. Just a really cool visual for me. Yeah. I think this is what's on the poster on the DVD case is them lying on the icy river. So just one thing to note as they're having these conversations, 
there are some weird things on the fringes that you suspect were intentionally included, but are just kind of odd. Are they just character defining or is there, is it informing something deeper? The answer is going to be, it's informing something deeper, but there's just a couple of weird details. Like they don't know things like they don't recognize the song. Oh, my darling Clementine. And Joel seems to not know what the constellations in the sky are. And just these weird things where like, there's something slightly off about how they're talking about things and thinking about things. And I will say that plays much more strongly on rewatch when you kind of know what's going on and why at this point, but it's, it's just kind of interesting. Did you pick up on any of that as you were watching Brian? So not the, them not remembering things like the songs. I I didn't put that together, but as far as them seeming to have a connection, despite never having met before, I knew what that was about. Gotcha. Because I, I knew the procedure that they were about to undergo in broad strokes. Yeah. So some breadcrumbs here for, for what's going to be coming for sure. So they've just had this really nice date. Joel's waiting in the car for Clementine to, to come meet her. They're going to spend the day together. When who should come and knock on the car window, but Elijah Wood has this very odd exchange with Joel. And then he kind of walks away. He's like, all right, buddy, move along. What are you doing out here? <laughs> More confrontational and obnoxious than I expect Elijah Wood to tend to be. Yeah. And beyond confrontational, it's just it's as if Elijah Wood knows something or is confused about something that Jim Carrey does not. It's you very much get that impression. So then he's sitting in the car. Boom. We got a smash cut. Different time and place. But now Joel is still in a car. Except now, instead of waiting for Clementine, he's he's there crying in the car. In fact, we have jumped to much later in Joel and Clementine's relationship. We've jumped to the end of their relationship at this point. They've just broken up. So they had a great, lovely start. Now they've fought. They've broken up. And Joel is devastated. He goes home that night. And in his apartment, he takes a pill. And he passes out onto the floor. When... Who should open the door? This is Joel's apartment. Who opens the door and comes in? It's Elijah Wood. Okay, something weird's going on here. And also with him is baby-faced Mark Ruffalo. He looks so young. So this is 2004, but it looks like longer than that before, say, the Avengers in 2012. I had to almost look up who this dude was, young Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, he his face is... There's like no bags under his eyes and his his haircut's a little spikier and perkier. His face just looks a little different. Yeah, he's got big glasses on, too. So um, so so these guys are named Patrick and Stan. I always just thought of them as Elijah Wood and Mark Ruffalo, um, but I'll, I'll try to call them Patrick and Stan. They're their character names. And so they they come in with this big sci fi looking equipment and it's like some classic goofy sci fi stuff, you know, uh, putting a big silver bowl over your head like you're going to get electric chaired or something like that. And then the movie kind of abruptly cuts again. And at this point we start seeing scenes from Joel's perspective, but we start seeing them in reverse chronological order. So we start with what we just saw prior to Joel passing out. He had like this awkward encounter with one of his apartment neighbors. And then it starts going backwards from there. We see him going to meet Clementine at a bookstore prior to him crying in the car. So these are going in reverse order. And as it goes from scene to scene, 
it's all being shot and edited in a weird way, like a, this really fascinating way. It'll cut from one scene to black or fade to blurriness, or you'll see it from different perspectives. So the, the inciting thing here is one scene kind of prior to where we saw him crying was at this bookstore. Clementine was all of a sudden ignoring Joel for no obvious reason. And he goes and he talks to his friends and they reveal that, hey, the reason she didn't do that, she's not just messing with you. She has undergone a cutting edge medical technique by a company called Lacuna to wipe away undesired memories. So she has intentionally forgotten her entire relationship with Joel and he is just not in her memories anymore. So she doesn't recognize him anymore. Yeah. So this company offers to wipe somebody from your brain, your memory of your interactions with them and ever having known them. So what this reminded me a little bit of is total recall, which was in some ways the opposite, but basically the same thing where you have a sci-fi company. The original title of the short story was we can remember it for you wholesale and the service that they offer is that they will manufacture memories and implant them in your brain, specifically vacation memories, because apparently it's cheaper than actually taking a real vacation. You can just remember that you had a vacation. But in that, it takes place further in the future. So there's like routine space travel is a thing that people can do. Uh, here, the world is completely modern, contemporary, normal. Except apparently there's this brainwashing company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is where we get the sci-fi aspect for sure. Uh, but I did look up what lacuna means. And is this a term that you had been familiar with, Dan? Possibly at one point, but I don't know it now. Okay, so it seems like a very uh, TJ term. It's something that would have come up at our nerdy high school. But apparently a lacuna, well, it means a gap. And so if you look it up on Wikipedia, there's like, you could have lacunas in your bones if you have osteoporosis or, mm. or things like that. But it seemed like the main thing it refers to is in ancient texts, like old uh, illustrated manuscripts by monks. If there is a space on a page where the text has been lost or just made illegible, that's a lacuna. Interesting. So that obviously fits very well with what the services that this company offers. Definitely. So when we kind of get this information, one of the friends, it's funny, David Cross, pre-Arrested Development. I think this is pre-Arrested Development. I can't remember when Arrested Development came out. But David Cross is there, Tobias, and he he kind of plays an obnoxious friend here. But he says, she decided to erase you almost as a lark. Which is just, to me, such a perverse thought. Like, it's the role of memory and identity is a very interesting thing to think about. And this movie spends some time breaking down. It's more than just, like, she blocked you on her phone. She literally pulled, like, on a whim, pulled out a, the memories of a multi-year relationship from her brain. I don't know. This is pretty messed up, man. Maybe this is something to return to at the end of the movie. But what I was thinking about this whole time was... Would I do this? Mm. I think this movie raises some interesting points, pros and cons. Yeah. Before this movie, I would have said absolutely not. Because like you, I'm very into preserving things. More so, I've tended to be at the end where I'm the one getting blocked, but I still save those memories. I think it should be preserved for posterity. But we'll cycle back to thoughts on this matter. Yeah, yeah. 
It made me think of the Ernest Hemingway quote, every man has two deaths when he is buried in the ground and the last time someone says his name. So this isn't about everybody forgetting you, but it still feels like a certain kind of death to have someone just forget you completely, you know? One question I had, though, about the mechanics of this. So they let the friends know, hey, she's lost her memories of Joel, but Joel doesn't know about this. So, like, I don't really understand the mechanics of, like, how they deal with this on a routine basis, because it seems like most of the services they provide are making people forget lovers. We do see, like, someone is forgetting their dead pet or something like that. But in general... There's even a remark, oh, we get a lot of business around Valentine's Day, like people forgetting lovers. You would think they would have a system for this. And if there is a system, it doesn't seem to have been set up properly for for Joel. Yeah, you would need like a whole witness protection program. Right. It just the whole thing seems a little messy. One thing I do want to say about this shot where he walks into the bookstore where she works and she doesn't remember him. And then Elijah Wood walks up. And it's clear that now she and Elijah Wood seem to be a couple. I loved the editing here because as soon as that happens and Jim Carrey puts it together that, whoa, not only does she seem to not have any idea who I am, but she's already got this other guy. All the light gets sucked out of the world. Just it's like everything except a little bit of light right around the faces of Kate Winslet and Elijah Wood just vacuums away like at the start of harry potter where uh alva stumbledore has the light put out or thing then it's like there's no more joy in the world this door has been shut all of a sudden beyond jim carrey's control and he turns on his heels and strides away and like in the space of three steps he goes from being in the bookstore to stepping in the door of his house so it's like space contracts yeah very cool yeah really really striking and just so evocative of the emotions that you might have in a moment like that yeah so one thing i want to i want to go back to that a little bit uh but one thing is the very first time you see the bookstore shot of her of him talking to kate winslet you see her talking to someone but it's carefully obstructed to the viewer who she's talking to so we know later that Joel did in fact see it, but we don't actually know that it's Elijah Wood. There's like a house plant in the way or something like that. So you don't see it until the second time we see it because we see it like a couple of times. There's like some weird time hopping as as this portion of the movie is going on. It's very cool and very almost trippy, as you say here. So Joel decides that since she's done this to him, he's going to do it to her. So he's going to go to Lacuna and he's going to make himself forget Clementine. They'll forget each other. It'll be done. And maybe this is Lacuna's business model is get every client becomes a second client. I don't know. But yeah, you could get repeat business here and maybe not even know it. Lacuna Matata. <laughs> that's a good, that's a possible episode title there. That's good. So he, he goes and he gets this procedure and then it, it kind of pieces together here that the reason we're going in reverse chronological order the reason we're seeing those weird editing techniques that Brian was talking about, things cutting to black and going blurry and space and time contracting, is because we're not seeing things in a linear reality. We are seeing things in his memory. In fact, we are erasing his memories of Clementine in reverse chronological order and seeing those memories as they are being erased. And he's kind of seeing those memories too. 
So he is present in the memory, both what the memory itself was, but also as like him in his brain thinking in the quote unquote presence about that memory and reacting to it. It's very trippy and it just starts to feel correct. And it does some really interesting things about how it's like him in the past, in the memory, but then it abruptly shifts to him thinking like Joel, who's undergoing the operation. It's just some clever writing. So I thought that was pretty cool. I also thought it made me think of the ghost of Christmas past. We talked a lot about that a couple weeks ago, how my wish for a superpower would be to be able to ghost of Christmas past into my own memories and other things that have happened and witness them as if I were there, like in the pensive and in Harry Potter. And Joel is basically getting to do that, but for his own romantic memories that he's getting undone. Pretty cool. I'll say when I read the sixth Harry Potter book, I didn't know what a sieve was. So I didn't put together like, oh, pensive, that's being thoughtful. But also a sieve is a, a sifter that catches things. And mm, yeah, that's a good. So I just thought it, I just thought it was a word. <laughs> I thought <laughs> all a made up word, but it rarely is in that series. Yeah. Lots of good etymology going on in that that series for sure. She would have been a fan of Lacuna as a company name. Yeah. And and as he's doing this, he's also hearing what the technicians are saying as they're undoing his memories. Because it's uh, Mark Ruffalo and Elijah Wood, Patrick and Stan, they're, they're the ones in his apartment undoing his memories in re- real time as he's revisiting these memories in his brain. As these memories continue to be erased, Brian mentioned the editing technique, but we see other more apocalyptic ways that these memories are erased. It's not always the sa- depicted the same way. So for example, sometimes we see cars falling from the sky, things abruptly vanishing, people with blurry faces and stuff. It's it's kind of weird. Yeah, cool editing all over the place. And this really felt like Inception to me. But of course, it was years before Inception. So once again, I see that clearly Christopher Nolan was just cribbing notes from other movies, uh, as when he stole the spinning hallway scene from High School Musical 3. (laughs) Classic. Is that why you said earlier that High School Musical 3 episode would come up again? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's important. Yeah. Important part of the film canon. Mm Mm-hmm. For sure. So some of the things that Joel is kind of hearing from these technicians in real time as he's living his memories, by the way, in real time, he's like unconscious. So he's like subconsciously processing the things that they're saying. But one of the things that comes out is that they're like Stan and Patrick are just shooting the shit. And Patrick admits that he had fallen in love with Clementine when he did her operation. And worse yet, he's using details from their relationship to basically seduce her. Oh, she really likes this kind of jewelry. I'm going to give her this kind of jewelry. Oh, she likes this kind of nickname and this type of stuff. And basically like using Joel's relationship with her, which she doesn't remember now, to basically get her to fall in love with him. And this just comes off as like, I know this isn't a real thing, but this is so slimy and just like horrible malpractice terrible ethics abuse and you start to see the progressively that lacuna is not there's some seediness under the hood as well as what is already a kind of morally at least questionable thing that one can do 
Yeah, but at the same time, it like almost makes sense because one person is cutting themselves out of the other person's life. So there's a gap there. And, and who has the knowledge to fill it but these technicians who are obsessively collecting it? Uh, the way that they set this up and start the procedure was interesting because what they do is they're like, bring in all the things that you associate with this person in your life. And on the one hand, that's because when they're gone from your life, you can't have these objects that are now meaningless lying around confusing you. But also to start off the mind wipe, the techs hold up each of these objects in front of you. And then they like map what your brain does when you look at them. And then they have this map of your brain that says all these little points that get triggered by memories of the person you want gone. And so now they can go into your brain and like spot weld and cauterize each of those little points. And that's what's going to wipe them out. <laughs> they say, uh, Jim Carrey asks, can this cause brain damage? And they say, well, this is brain damage. Yeah, good line. They're basically going to take an ice pick and just prod at each of those points that they located earlier. It's like, a, what's the operation when they cut out part of your brain called? A lobotomy. Uh, yeah, it's like, it's a micro lobotomy, basically. Like a, a whole bunch of pico-sized lobotomies on your brain. Although it does leave a shadow, as we will see. But another character who we haven't mentioned yet is another Lacuna employee named Mary, played by Kirsten Dunst of Spider-Man fame. So she plays a receptionist at Lacuna. She's kind of always there as Joel is prepping for this. But then she just randomly shows up at the apartment. Clearly there to party with Stan. That's the Mark Ruffalo character at Joel's apartment. And she starts like raiding the booze cabinet and stuff. Yeah, they start smoking weed. It's like in an 80s movie, the babysitter bringing her boyfriend over at the house that she's sitting at except these guys are performing brain surgery essentially <laughs> i thought this was so funny just these like stoner slacker techs doing this high intensity high precision science fiction procedure i was laughing yeah it's also real ooky because they're like they're partying and she's like dancing in her underwear, drinking, smoking with music blasting. Yeah, literally they're dancing around in their underwear on the bed, either side of Jim Carrey lying there getting his brain wiped. Yeah. And at this point, Clementine, so kind of parallel, Clementine is in the midst of having some sort of breakdown. I think she's kind of reacting to the fact that she's sort of dissociating from this memory loss that she recently had inflicted upon her. And, you know, Patrick is the this is uh, Elijah Wood is the boy that she's been seeing recently. So she calls him up. And so he kind of leaves, even though he's supposed to be on duty, that he just kind of leaves. And so this whole thing is kind of going downhill. But the, the operation does continue. They say it's on autopilot. And in Joel's head, as he sees the memories and it goes earlier and earlier in the relationship, because remember, the memories that we're witnessing are in reverse chronological order. So we started with the really bad fight, but things are getting better and better as time goes. Um, he starts to decide, hey, this is actually a good memory and maybe one that I should keep forever and not lose. Like, it is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. So I don't want to do this anymore. 
I want to not erase my memories anymore. Make it stop. Make it stop. Except, you know, he's unconscious at this point. So he starts like in his memory version of himself where he's witnessing these. He starts fighting the procedure, trying to save Clementine from being erased as he goes through these memories. And there's really cool effects. I mean, we've already mentioned it, but just as it gets deeper and deeper, the movie gets more ambitious with the ways that the memories break down and blend together and stuff. And it it starts occasionally becomes blurry reality, like three sets mashed together, two copies of the same people. They have weird faces. They abruptly change from person to person. It, it almost resembles a horror movie for parts of this. Yeah, there's certainly some shots of people having their like faces rubberized that were straight out of a horror movie. And the the tactic he comes up with of the way that he's going to kind of avoid this procedure is I'm going to take these memories, particularly uh, my memory of Clementine, and bring her to some memory they are not erasing. And so he starts trying to come up with memories that are not associated with her and he dives into like some of his deep Freudian crevices, deep wells of shame and early formative memories. Yeah, this was brilliant because remember the text made a map of the memories associated with Clementine. So he's going to take her off the grid into these memories they don't know about yet. They don't know to look there. Yeah, so it starts to become like a chase movie at this point because he hops off the map and then partiers it's mark ruffalo and um kirsten dunst and they're like oh what what's going on we're not on the map anymore we're not there and then we see in his brain the different memories he's hopped to and it's all like stuff mostly childhood memories but stuff unrelated to clementine one that is my favorite of these is we see a scene where he was a kid hiding under the table while his mom and her friend have a cocktail and the way that this plays out when he like stuffs Clementine into there is he becomes the three-year-old, but he's still Jim Carrey in his grown-up form. And Clementine becomes, Kate Winslet becomes the, the mom's friend, I think it is. Or maybe it's the mom. I'm not sure which one it is. But it's really funny because it's kind of freaky because Joel, Jim Carrey, is portrayed in this scene as if he's like three feet tall, whereas Clementine is like full-sized. And so... I don't know exactly how they shot this, but it's it's like weird, uncanny adult child Jim Carrey playing this kid. It made me think of the visual effect that you and I achieved, Brian, when we went to that optical illusion museum in Florida, where we they, we like stand in different places and the way the room is shaped and the grids are is if you take a 2D picture, it looks like we're totally different sizes. Yeah, so it may be like forced perspective as an element of it. Also, I think when it's from certain angles, it's just actually a kid. Like when you don't see Jim Carrey's face, mm. what it made me think of was Rich Little's Christmas Carol when he played Tiny Tim. And it's like from far away, it's an actual child in a Truman Capote costume. <laughs> and then when it cuts into his face, suddenly it's adult Rich Little. Yeah. So it's a little of that. It's a little, yeah, weird angles and just very disconcerting. Uh, this struck me too. It was almost like Lord of the Rings, like when you got to have the hobbits in scenes with other characters and suddenly they're tiny. It's like, oh, throws off your perspective. Yeah. But now the the operation is going bad because Joel is fighting back 
And so Stan and Mary decide to call Dr. Howard. So he's the head of Lacuna. He's been kind of on the fringes of the movie so far. He's like the the guy who invented the procedure. And he's got to come in and he's got to fix this procedure. Get it back on track. And I was laughing here again because this is the time when the grunts have to call in the boss. And what it had me thinking of was Return of the Living Dead, where suddenly you get corpses running around. Gotta call the head of the warehouse to come in. <laughs> and and may, maybe he'll know what to do. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the seasoned hand, the veteran brain wiper has to show up. And he's like, well, what was going on when... He went off the grid and Mark Ruffalo's like, um, you know, I looked away for a second. And of course, Mark Ruffalo and Kristen Dunst are token up and running around in their underwear and haven't been paying attention at all until like the laptop or whatever is monitoring. It starts beeping. It's beeping. It's <laughs> pretty funny. Yeah. So the yeah, the boss man, Dr. Howard, he manages. I think Howard is his first name. They just call him Howard for most of it. I'm going to keep calling him Dr. Howard, even though that makes it sound like his last name is Howard. Uh, Dr. Howard manages to get things back on track, but Joel continues to resist it. He doesn't want these things to be erased. And the movie does a really good job of like, again, going backwards in time. The early memories are happier. And like each memory we see is like this really lovely moment. It's like, oh, they're cuddling in bed and playing some dumb game. And some of them are kind of weird, but in general, they're really sweet. And so, like, they'll be sharing this really intimate moment. And then, like, abruptly, Kate Winslet will disappear from the scene, leaving a heartbroken Jim Carrey. And, like, every time it happens, it stabs me in the gut. It's it's really well done of, like, making you sad that he's losing these these memories, you know. Back out in, in the, the real world with the grunts, as you called them. And I guess the boss man there basically right away, Mary. So that's Kristen Dunst. She is flirting with the doctor. He's an older guy. He's not like super suave looking. He's definitely smart and composed, but she's just like aggressively flirting with him. And she eventually like comes on real hard to him and kisses him like in the middle of the operation. When like 30 minutes prior, she'd been dancing in her underwear with Mark Ruffalo yeah, but also kind of the whole movie, she's been like, oh, have you seen Howard recently? Have you talked to Howard? So, like, Howard is on her mind. That's true. That's so definitely I true. I was wondering, I don't know, I was starting to suspect, like, along the way, I was wondering if maybe Mark Ruffalo was doing the same thing that Patrick was doing. Mm. And we'll see when things shake out what was actually going on. That was an inkling I had in my head. Interesting, yeah. But she ends up kissing Howard, the, the boss man doctor. And right as that happens, who should appear but a character we have not yet previously seen, who is Howard's wife. So this is like a, a middle-aged woman. So she, I guess she saw that he ran off to go help with this, and she kind of followed him. And when she appears, it's right as as Kirsten Dunst is kissing the doctor, and the wife confronts them, and... Kristen Dunst is like, oh, it was just a one-time thing. I'm sorry, I just got carried away. And Dr. Howard's wife reveals that, no, that's not true. It's not a one-time thing where you got carried away. You previously had an affair with Dr. Howard, only to have her memory erased of it, so that she could continue to work at the place without having the memory of the affair there. 
this is another thing that just feels real slimy, especially the unequal balance of it where he remembers it, but she doesn't remember it. Right. And I think it's strongly implied, if not outright stated, that the doctor encouraged her to do this. It's yeah, it's like a brain abortion. Oh, I didn't even think about that. But it basically you're right. It's a strong abortion parallels. Man, that is definitely true. You're blowing my mind right now. And I mean, this whole premise that the people who have the memories can take advantage of the people who now don't returns to some of our talking points during time loop month, which is people who have gone through the loop and retain their memories. Yeah, do have a big power imbalance. Wow, that is a really strong parallel to that. It's like the exact same situation, but slightly different in that it's not one person with the same day, but it's another person has wiped out a whole bunch of days. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So Mary, this is Kirsten Dunst. She storms off, obviously very upset about what she just learned. Uh, but Dr. Howard's got to finish the operation. So he, it's wrapping up. He goes in and at last we are at the, it's been going in reverse chronological order to the moment where they met. The last thing that needs to get erased, the last trace of Clementine in Joel's brain. So one thing we've talked about in some episodes is when movies have like a scene that is quote unquote the scene of the movie or a phrase I've used a few times, I think, is the movie's masterpiece moment. The the culminating moment, the, the magical moment of this movie that will stick with you is this thing which is where everything comes together for you. And for me, the masterpiece moment of this is this last memory that gets erased. As we know from the start of the movie, they meet cute at Montauk. So there's a house they break into and it's on the beach. It's like a beach house they break into. They're flirting. They're drinking. They're having a good time together. You know, great signs of having a good first date. You're you're flirting. You're laughing. You're stealing. <laughs> yeah. And as this is happening, the world is collapsing around them. Shelves are shaking. Walls are breaking down. The roof is falling down. And the tide is coming in. Yes. Yeah. Up to like across the floor. Like it starts washing the house away. And Clementine, Kate Winslet, because she's like in the memory, is playing it basically straight, like not reacting to it at all. Although she's like able to converse with him and like trying to strategize how she doesn't disappear. It's like this weird balancing act of all these things fitting together as like the literal world and connection they have is collapsing around them. And it's just like really, I don't know, stirring to me. I, I really like this moment. And the, it culminates as he's walking away. So he ended up running away from that house that they broke into. And as she disappears, she says, bye, Joel. Just as she's vanishing, she whispers, meet me in Montauk. And then she's gone. So this is the moment when, at least for me, the first time I saw it, a light switch flipped. So this memory of their first date kind of resembles the opening scenes that we saw. It's on Montauk. It's in the winter. They're they're connecting in a meet cute. But it is not the same. It's definitely not the same. For one, her hair is a different color. And that's the kind of a thing that comes up in the movie. She changes her hair color a lot. In the opening meeting, there was no crowd on the beach, but here they're like at an event. So there's a lot. There's a crowd there. There's no snow. We know that they left before dark. It's clearly not the same thing. And so the movie's twist, which the, it now gets kind of built up to, is that 
the opening scene, which seemed like it was their first time ever meeting, sort of. I mean, maybe you could have guessed it if you knew the, the premise of the movie. And maybe, Brian, you did. I don't know. But that, that opening scene where they meet and when it's smash cut to what seemed to be the future, it was actually smash cut into the past. And the opening scene is actually them meeting again after both of them have had their memory wipes. And so they think it's a fresh relationship. They think it's brand new. But in fact, they have this whole history already. Pretty clever twist here. What did you think of this, Brian? Yeah. So I'll say going in, I knew this was a movie about memories getting erased. And so I kind of put together that they knew each other, but they didn't know how they knew each other at this starting point. So I don't know. I put together that this was not point one on the timeline. Right. Uh, but then when it's smash cut to Jim Carrey crying in the car, I was confused about when and where exactly we were. So I, I didn't know exactly where it was going to fall, but I, I knew it wasn't the first thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So now that kind of the opening scene and everything that followed it have all kind of come together, we see what happens next, which is that Mary, the Kirsten Dunst character in her anger at what Lacuna and Dr. Howard did to her, she takes all of the files of the people with the forgotten memories, which include like audio tapes, cassette tapes of people saying why they want to forget someone and like mementos and stuff and sending them back to the people who had their memories wiped. So she's like undoing the memory wipe. This is an ethically complicated thing to do. <laughs> and I would say probably more bad than good if the memory has already been erased. I don't know. But it syncs up with Joel and Clementine where they basically like simultaneously get their no, actually, it's actually not simultaneously. First, Clementine gets her file back and she like in the car when they're driving together, puts on this tape she got in the mail. And it's like her talking about how much she hates Joel. And to their knowledge, they've just been together for like two days. So why is she talking about how annoying and bland and bookish and judgmental Joel is? in her voice about this guy who's in the car with him. And it's like a very surreal moment. And then indeed Jim Carrey's Joel goes back to his house and he has one from Clementine, which she comes up and she hears too. It's, it's a very bizarre thing because they're now both hearing the worst about what the other would hypothetically think about them at some point in the future, but doesn't think about them now, but also already sort of from each other. It's just a very weird thing, but it also like it kind of clicks pretty well. It's like not unintuitive. So I don't know. Right. But then they decide, oh, well, we, you know, we don't feel that now. So why would we feel that eventually? So let's just try this again. Yeah. So that's the big thing is they've heard this. They, they see how bad it dissolves and they decide they're going to try it again because I don't know why. They're worth trying to dissect why they would do this. I think the theme is that they believe that despite the toxicity that their relationship evolved into, that their true connection supersedes that. And just because things could go wrong in a bad scenario doesn't mean they will go wrong. So it's like an optimistic choice. We will make it right this time. We will do it right this time. We will let love conquer all. But what was your take, Brian? Well, hearing the tapes that they made complicates things, obviously. But this, to me, was like one of the strongest arguments in favor of having this procedure done. Because if you have the heartbreak erased and all the things that led to the heartbreak, you're back at square one. You're ready to love again. You're going to be attracted to the same things in the person as you were before. 
it's like a time loop where nobody remembers. Oh, man. So it makes sense that it's going to play out the same way. That they would meet up and still like each other because as far as they know, they're just... It's the first impression all over again. Yeah, I don't like that they laid the full-out tapes for each other. Yeah, that would be a big stumbling block. You're you're right. But, I mean, think about it. If there is such a thing as love at first sight, or just lust at first sight, and you have this strong, positive first impression, you know, maybe you're going to overlook naysayers, even if the naysayers are yourself. I mean, I guess it's like, you just got to know, what will I think of you in two years? But it, it's also like, why would one subject themselves to that? I'd rather let the mystery be, to quote the theme song from the leftovers then get an answer for how you will feel in the future especially if you know it's dark that's the thing is it's not just like looking into the future it's looking at a dark version of the future that could be be optimistic don't don't set yourself up to believe that the true version is the the toxic version i don't know maybe i'm an optimist an idealist are these the shadows of things that will be or the things that may be only yeah there you go perfect connection exactly you can make things right. You can do things better with your own free will. I will not be the man I was. It always comes back to Scrooge on this podcast. For me, it does. <laughs> the Ur character of the goods. But that's how the movie ends. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, 2004, directed by Michael Gondry, written by Charlie Kaufman. And there we have it. So, Brian, let's talk some good things and not so good things or other assorted thoughts we might not have been able to fit in thus far. Okay, yeah, a couple more things to throw in. But I just will say one more time that I really loved the editing and the effects. This was like Inception that was easier for me to follow. I mean, it has some of the twisty mind fucks, but not so much that you just completely lost. It has an emotional through line. Uh, it, it still, though, has some cool, trippy sci-fi special effects. When he first starts getting his mind wiped, Jim Carrey, like, walks into a room and sees himself getting mind-wiped there on the bed. So he's in multiple places at once. Just so many cool visuals. So many cool ways of conveying that the memories are getting wiped away from, like, people sinking into singularities and disappearing to all the light getting drained out of the world and the tide washing the house away. I was loving this. Completely agree. Everything in the memoryscape is phenomenal. The way that it manages to calibrate you to exactly what's happening and blending that with these astonishing visual effects. I mean, really cool looking stuff. It's not like big CGI battleships shooting each other, but it's just setting effects that are, are taking place. And I don't know, weird lighting and lens usage and all this stuff. I'm with you there. I think it's phenomenal when whenever it's there, for sure. And just another Inception parallel, when the boss has to show up and fix things, uh, he might even say we need to go deeper, but <laughs> he he and like Mark Ruffalo pull out this suitcase that's got like helmets in it and put them on and they have to like patch in. And it's like, wow, this this feels very Inception-y to me. Yeah, it, it has tinges of maybe not 50s sci-fi, but more gimmicky sci-fi stuff like with weirder sci-fi equipment it's it's a pretty buttoned down in our reality aside from the actual procedure but i like when we get flashes of the the weird tech and stuff that's it's always cool for me i, I would just say 
we've brought up Groundhog Day here. And that's a movie I thought of a lot when I was watching here. Because one thing that I think this movie does that Groundhog Day also does is it takes a structurally impossible or implausible concept. In the case of Groundhog Day, it's a time loop. Here it's traversing backwards through your memories as they get erased. It takes this concept with tremendous emotional impact, but also makes it easily processed and like hits all the notes that are compelling to hit in this. So there are other movies that do cool structural things. Like I'm thinking of the movie Memento by Christopher Nolan that don't do as much for me on rewatches because I already know, oh yeah, this is the order that things are happening in. And we're just, we're going to be surprised about this thing. And it's going to be, oh my gosh, we were surprised about this thing, but there's not as much of a, I like the phrase you use. There's not as much of a, an emotional through line for us to care about what's happening and kind of intuitively feel the the structure that's happening. So I feel like this movie nails that. And I, I think that's pretty cool. I, I also wanted to shout out, I think the acting is good in general and I think pretty well cast. Kate Winslet in this is awesome. I, I complained in our Titanic episode that she was just fine. There's a, a phrase in baseball, value ab- above replacement player. Basically, like what is the average person you could plug into this role and what would it look like? In baseball, it's what if you took a replacement player and just plugged them in. In Titanic, she was not batting very much above replacement player level. She was just a decent actress playing Rose. And that was fine. It worked because that wasn't the main thing you needed from that movie. Here, I think she is phenomenal. She's doing much more actual acting to my eyes. And I think she like conveys a lot about this character that is honestly not a perfect character from a writing perspective. She's kind of a manic pixie dream girl, although that gets lampshaded a little bit. But she she has a monologue where she's like, I'm not just a concept or a thing to make you feel good. I'm a person. But I didn't always think her writing was the strongest among all the characters, but I thought her acting was awesome. Yeah, strong performances. And I'm glad you pointed out the manic pixie dream girl thing. Apparently, this was before that term had gotten used much. Yeah. But they're trying a little to complicate that portrayal. Right. I mean, she still basically is one. Right. Yeah. I would say in general, this a not so good thing about this movie is it's got a women problem. The women are all not very sympathetic characters. In, in various ways. I mean, we come to appreciate Clementine and root for her, but she is like very uneven and erratic and does harsh things. Oh, and she is a drunk also. Yeah. And then we see Kirsten Dunst and Kirsten Dunst is like, so she's partying. And I think it's suggested like actually hooking up with Mark Ruffalo's character and then 30 minutes later, the doctor comes and she's flirting with him and then abruptly kissing him. And then, oh, wait, now she's sending out all these privileged medical records of questionable ethics of sending it out. I would like to hear someone's take on the pros and cons of doing what that was. But to me, is at least a bold move, an erratic move. What did you think of Kristen Dunst in this movie? Well, this was the same year as Spider-Man 2. So I don't know. Good to see her in another prominent role. I'll say I didn't see what she saw really in Mark Ruffalo or the weird old guy, but (laughs) 
I would say that both of those men are more attractive than Kirsten Dunst's actual husband because she's married to Jesse Plemons. I only learned this in like the last two weeks, but the creepy guy in season five of Breaking Bad, who is like the more evil replacement for Jesse, she's married to that guy. <laughs> That's pretty funny. He's probably nice. He probably is. And then the the only other female character of note, I was racking my brain. There's the nagging wife of the friend. And then there's the wife of the doctor who comes and she's kind of the the chaste old woman with a dead sex life. And I don't know, none of these char- the female characters seemed as rich as and sympathetic as the male characters. It's not surprising to me that this movie was written by a male. I don't know. It It took me out just a little bit as I was kind of thinking a little bit about it, but... I think another thing that brought me out just a little bit is this movie seems to take for granted that relationships crumble. Did Charlie Kaufman write this after a breakup? Is he always this dour about romance? I don't know. But every relationship of note that we see is either fake or crumbling. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of representation of healthy romance in this movie. Yeah, I think I'll have to think about that one for a little while. You're right. So just some things that kind of popped in my brain. I don't know. I, I kind of hit most of my ups and downs as, as we were going. I'm pretty much ready to rate. What about you, Brian? Well, I, I just have the talking point of, would you ever get this procedure done? Would you pay a visit to Lacuna? Oh, let's talk about that. Yeah. So here's what I'll say. No for me, but I could see wanting to erase traumas. So I, I don't have anything in my life that I look back on and that is a defining traumatic experience for me. To me, that's the real promise of this. It's not like I'm sad about a breakup or that my pet died, but like if there are real traumas in your life, I mean, not to say that those things don't have traumatic elements to them, but like, I, I don't want to get too dark speculating what some of those things could be, but just if very tragic things happen to you, that to me is the actual use case for this tool. Like, I feel like you would need multiple psychologists to sign off on it, not just a I walk in and say I want it kind of thing. <laughs> not somebody with a GED is going to glue a, a, you know, a helmet to your head and fry your brain. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Brian? Where'd you land on it? This movie made it tempting, especially if the other person's going to do it, too. Uh, which is not a guarantee, obviously, but like it had me thinking about it. And it's like, on the one hand, you know, you want to preserve the memories. You want to preserve the uh, experience and the, the lessons that it taught you. But also, I mean, if it was all gone and you were back at square one, you wouldn't even know. So like, at least in the heat of the moment, when you're really feeling down, I could see wanting to do it. Yeah. I can see the appeal of it for sure. It'd be easier if I didn't have the pain of that bad experience. I mean, the flip side of it to me, though, is look how depressed these people all seem when they have the disconnect in their brain of huge gaps of what they remember and like emptiness there instead of pain. I I think this movie is a little bit emo in the sense that its theme is my sadness makes me more human. That's not necessarily the A1 theme of this, but that is a theme. Sad feelings are okay because they make us more human. And it kind of illuminates that by showing the things you lose when you delete all your memories, you know. 
but I don't know. It's it is tempting. Yeah, no, that's a good point. But now I'm ready to rate. So is it good is our signature section of this podcast where we give each movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good, a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating tour day good. That's an eight out of eight. Brian is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. A good movie. All right. So I'll say that this one really resonated with me. Maybe it's just the time of year. One year's coming to an end. Another one's about to begin. Fresh start. It's it's cold and a little gray out there. But I'm going to give this an eight. Of eight out of eight on our rating. Uh, we've called this the masterpiece. I guess the official name is Tour de Good. It's not one I've given out very often. But I don't know. I needed to see this this week. And I'm definitely going to revisit it at some point in the future, and, and maybe it would have potential to backslide. So maybe this is something that gets adjusted later on. But just all the, like, mind-bendy effects, and yet still telling an accessible story, I was really into this. Our masterpiece rating. I could be wrong. That might be our first eight out of this batch of 25 episodes. So going back to starting with episode 51 up through the present. I was flipping through our old ratings recently, and we've been much lower since our episode 50 spectacular. Yeah, we've had some low ones. I mean, I think there's two factors behind that. One is we've kind of loosened up. We feel freer to talk shit. But also, I mean, we, we, we feel freer to assign films outside the classic canon. Things like the Care Bears movie, and I mean, that was already a while ago, but but things like Max Magician, say, and uh, just so, some other things that we might have stronger opinions leaning towards the negative. AWOG. Yes, Amazing World of Ghosts, um, the, the, the really long one, As I Was Moving Ahead. Yeah, I was thinking about that movie today. This movie actually made me think of that a little bit too, because that movie is a lot about memory and like these fragments of moments that he's kind of recollecting. Just the kind of nature of memory being a theme of that one. So for me, is Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind good? I went in, I hadn't seen it in maybe 10 years. I was fully prepared to mark it down significantly, ready to be contrarian to my previous self, as I have been for many of the things I've rewatched, but I was unable to do so. I believe that this movie is a masterpiece as well. I'm going to also give it a tour de good, an 8 out of 8. I really got a lot out of this movie watching it again. Similar reasons to you. I think its filmmaking is phenomenal. As we witness this erasure of memory and see also the story of a relationship as we do so and just see the kind of effect of that emotionally, really kind of thinking through it. Again, the same way that Groundhog Day made me kind of do the same thing. So this is a tour day good for me, for sure. Eight out of eight. Brian, that makes it our second entry into the 16 Club. Yeah, Groundhog Day is the only other one, so. There you go. Wow. An 8 plus an 8 is a 16. Yeah, I I'll say in the last couple days, I actually rewatched Titanic because it's leaving Netflix again. It, it pops on and off of Netflix pretty frequently. I still really like that one. I think I am still sticking with a 7 for that, though. Gotcha. Not not quite a, a 16 club, because I gave that one an 8. It's it's so close, though. I, I love that movie, but the, the writing, like, it gets almost to the end, and then Old Rose says, A woman's heart is a deep ocean of secrets. <laughs> it's like, okay, come on. Some of these lines are a little cheesy. Also, they say each other's names a lot. 
Jack! Rose! Jack! Jack! No, I couldn't possibly, Jack! Three Jacks in a row, yeah. Yeah, but that's a, that's a different film. A, a topic for another day. But yeah, good one. I'm glad you brought this to my attention. Cool, I'm, I'm glad we watched it. You filled in a lacuna in my film <laughs> knowledge. Number 66 on my old top 100. I think it's probably going to place higher on my next top 100 whenever that eventually gets pieced together. I think that's that's a pretty safe bet. But Brian, what are we going to be watching next week? All right, drum roll. I went back and forth on this one a little bit. It went through a couple different ideas because obviously, I mean, you got to sign the right thing to start off the new year. So what I settled on is the film La La Land think it came out in 2016 but uh, i experienced it right at the very start of 2017 and it takes place i think over the course of a year it's like got different acts in different seasons and and the progression of time is important so uh yeah that's the one i'm going to toss on next i've seen it uh, a couple times but uh, i want to introduce to you have you watched this one before no i've really been wanting to for a bunch of reasons so i'm looking forward to watching it good pick I'm excited. And so, yeah, that's what's on my brain up next. It's got uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. And hey, J.K. Simmons is there. So let's check it out. I think Jessica Roth is in it, too, from Happy Death Day. Oh, I think you did bring that up. I'll, I'll keep my eye out for her as we watch. I mean, we'll tell you all about it. We'll tell you all about it. I think I, I, think I know where she pops up. Not a major role, but I, I can vaguely remember that she's probably there. Cool. Well, now that you've heard from us, let's hear from someone else. Email us a review of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or any film we've previously discussed, and we might read yours. If we do pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. I clicked through maybe 100 reviews on Letterboxd, Brian, and I'm going to go with one from our old friend, Gargus. Uh, we talked to Gargus in the episode about Hedwig and the Angry Inch. They were a guest on our podcast. They read a lot of good reviews on Letterboxd. I really like their review of Eternal Sunshine. I'm going to pull a quote from one of the closing paragraphs of that review. It's, it's a pretty in-depth review, but here's the quote. For all the talk about its reputation as one of the most emotionally devastating films of this century thus far, the more I think about it, the more I find this film has a wholly honest almost revitalizing message. Shit happens in relationships, and while the pain they leave behind can be intolerable, it is always better to face it and work through your shortcomings to become a better person and do better in the future. Maybe Joel and Clementine fall apart again, but for all they lost to the lacuna technique, they still have the maturity and openness to face their issues and make it work together. Even if they break up, that platform of experience and personal insight will not go away. It is, against everything I heard, a touching humanist film about acknowledging one's problems and striving to better them, even if you don't quite understand how. So there you go. Thanks, Gargus, for, for writing that review. Can I say one last thing? No, well, one is, so really great writing in that review. I'm glad that we can pull from uh, a past guest star on our podcast. But uh, I just wanted to say one other thing that eternal sunshine made me think of and these texts doing the procedure that i just found so funny they reminded me of the scientists who are kind of interrogating and working with bruce willis in 12 monkeys oh good pull yeah yeah that he keeps he keeps coming out of his time trips 
they, they will ask him, oh, what did you see? Well, try to do this next. And they're like celebrating with him in between the, the bits when he like comes back with a piece of intelligence and they're playing music for him. Blueberry Hill. Yeah. And they're just these kooky scientists who clearly have a life on the side. You know, it's not just about their work. Right. And that connection added to my appreciation for the film. Cool. That's good. Yeah. And with that, we'll see you next time. <laughs> On The Goods, a film podcast. Thanks, Brian. Have a good one. Happy New Year.